This is Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. I'm Jesse Felder. Object to the test! This episode is brought to you by The Felder Report. Uh, each week, I go through a ton of reading and research, and I put it all together in a free email newsletter that goes out Saturday mornings, including some of the best stuff that I've read during the week, my favorite chart of the week, etc. If you're interested in receiving something like this, just go to thefelderreport.com, and right there on the homepage, it says join now. Click that, put in your email address, and you'll be all set. My guest for this episode is Kirill Sokoloff. And among professional investors, what Kirill's really known for is his ability to identify the next big thing and early on in its development cycle. And for this reason, his views are some of the most sought out in the entire world of finance. Um, since 1983, he's been sharing his views about markets and more at the firm he founded, 13D Research, uh, via its weekly report, What I Learned This Week. Uh, in this episode, we talk about his research process, how he goes about identifying these major trends, and his current views on currency markets, equity markets, and economies around the world. So I really hope you enjoy my conversation with Kirill Sokoloff. I wonder why fund managers can't beat the S&P 500? Because they're sheep. And sheep get slaughtered. Kirill, welcome to the show. It's really a pleasure to have you here. I, I had a, a couple episodes I did with Mark Yusko, and he told me, you have to get Kirill on the podcast. So I know we've been working to try and make this happen, and we finally have done it. So I'm really happy to have you, and welcome to the show. Well, Jesse, it's a real pleasure to be here. Mark's a very good friend, and... Uh, I look forward to spending time with you today. Great, great. Well, why don't we start out with, uh, we can talk a little bit about what is 13D and what it is that you do. Sure. Well, I guess the best way to think of us is we're a global strategy and research firm uh, with a global presence and focused a lot on uh, China and India, which we think are the upcoming uh, great investment opportunities. Uh, we have a eight value propositions that I could go over with you very quickly. When I was uh, with uh, the CIO of a major sovereign wealth fund in Asia, he said, you are the agnostic interpreter of what the markets are telling us. And I thought that was a huge compliment because that's what we really try to do. We're dedicated to seeing change uh, before others uh, we focus on disruption. We're cutting-edge contrarians. We're original thinkers. What you hear from us, you're probably not going to be hearing from others. We're looking for the next big thing. And we focus on the real story of China. We think China's very misunderstood by Western investors. And because of disruption in technology, what do we educate our children for? It's a huge question. We think about it all the time, study it. I wish I had the answers, but we search for it. And then lastly, I'm dedicated, because I want to live for a long time, for the latest in anti-aging and health treatments and technology. I'll do anything and go anywhere and try it if it works on me, then I'll tell uh, our readers and clients about it. Excellent, excellent. And, and you put together your thoughts in a, a weekly newsletter, is that right? 
That's correct. Yeah. Called what I learned this week. It's something that uh, for me has been um, fascinating to read through because I don't know how you cover so much every single week. I'm I'm jealous of <laughs> your abilities to do that, but uh, it's very impressive and very um, insightful stuff. Let, let's uh, let's backtrack a little bit. How did how did you first get involved or get interested in investing in finance? Well, I think the answer is that. If I were going to use my brain, I wanted to get paid for it. And I've always been interested in the future and change. And change is where you make money or lose money. So that always interested me. And uh, what's the sense of predicting the future if you can't make uh, money out of it or benefit from it or help others? So it was pretty easy for me to tie all that together into what we're doing what I've done my whole career. And so, you know, at what point in your life did you realize investing is how I want to spend my time and doing all this research and and that sort of stuff? I'd say probably from my earliest uh, years. um, Certainly, I was lucky I didn't take an economics course in, in college. So I right. learned in the real world. <laughs> yeah. Huge competitive advantage. Uh, but uh, the future is fascinating. Uh, I've read a lot of history. And as Winston Churchill said, the farther back you go, the farther forward you'll be able to see. And so, st- yeah, and that's one thing that I notice is, is so many people uh, in the markets that I come across have so little understanding of history and go back, you know, they think, well, this is the average for the past 20 years. And they think that's history. You know, so uh, that's, that's, you know, uh, one thing I've noticed is your time, time frame uh, is different than most participants. And that probably is a function of, uh, well, you tell me. I mean, I, I, it's, I think it's a competitive advantage to have a time frame longer than three to six months these days. Oh, I totally agree with you. If you study history, what you see is that there are long periods of wealth accumulation, wealth distribution, long periods of rising interest rates, falling interest rates, long periods of rising inflation, long periods of, of falling inflation. And to be very simplistic, those three historical cycles is really what it's all about. And they last for 20 or 30 years. They can last for 40 years, but they don't last forever. Yeah, well, let's talk about um, that. You know, I I was reading through one of your recent reports, um, and I'll just quote you. It says, uh, every trend or trend reversal starts with one small piece of evidence, and then a highly watchful observer will find others. How do you go about determining, you know, which are the important trends to pay attention to and which are just noise? Yeah, well, that's a very, very, very good question. I think that let's take the, the 2011-2015 deflation period. So we start off with the fact that commodities had never gone down for three years straight without any rallies in 500 years. And then it went down for four years. So you were in unmarked 
territory that had never happened before. So you start off with that. So I'm looking at that and saying, there's a trend reversal. Now I have to identify what are the signs. So I started writing a series in December 2015, which essentially said, the last will be first, the first will be last. But that summer, the summer of 2015, I noticed that the big mining companies were selling off assets that they had purchased for huge prices five or six or seven years before for nothing. They gave it away. That's always the sign of the bottom. I saw that in New York City real estate in 1977. I saw that in the mid 80s when the big oil companies had amassed all these uh, commodity producers and there was suffering huge losses and they just said, get it out of here, get it out, give it away. So that was a signal already in the summer of 2015 that the changes were coming. Then we had in 2016, where the deflation and excess capacity had begun, in China, we started to see iron ore prices and steel prices going up massively. And China is the leader of the world. Westerners don't think that, but if you spend a lot of time in China, you'll, you'll understand that they are the leader in many areas. I'm not necessarily saying the leader economically, although I am saying that in some ways, but what happens in China is what will happen later in the rest of the world. So when these commodity prices started to go up in China, that was a big sign to us that the world had changed. Gold prices were soaring. Gold mining stocks were going up. Currency uh, in commodities were going up. Commodity currencies were going up. So we started to get all of these, these signals. And ideally, you want the signals to broaden and broaden and broaden and broaden. When you come off of a, a huge deflationary cycle like we had 2011, 2015, or 2008, if you will, 2015, you have to be very careful that, that, that you're right. And so we look for broad confirmation and uh, that's, that's what has now happened. So our re work indicates that the, the Global reflation is spreading around the world and markets that had been dormant for decades are coming alive. Well, and, and that brings me to, you know, I mean, identifying these individual trends. Yeah, I think you told me before we spoke, uh, before we started recording the podcast, that you think there are two things crucial to becoming a better investor. And, and first is to study your big wins understand how you and why you you made those correct calls and then also second was to study your big mistakes and understand you know what went wrong um you know what were some of the uh you know the calls that you got right over the you know over time and things things that you got wrong and and what did you learn from those yeah well i studied that a lot um so what i'm best at is seeing the primary trend and the next next big thing. That's, that's my forte. That's what I like to do. And that's where my history of being right is. And once you get that right, even if you make mistakes within that move, it doesn't matter because you've got the tidal wave behind you that will bail you out. 
So I'm going back to my involvement with supply-side economics at the very beginning before Ronald Reagan was elected president. And I watched the 1976 Republican convention and I saw that Ronald Reagan received a 45-minute standing ovation. And I said, oh boy, here we go. And we've just been on a wealth distribution cycle from 1932, and that was 1976. That's a long period of time. And my sense was, from my reading of history and the mood of the country, that America was ready for a shift. And that was a historic event because supply-side economics and cutting tax rates to spur economic growth was what Reaganomics became and launched this massive wealth creation that we've been on since then. And uh, I contacted Jack Kemp, who basically was the one who proposed the first cut in tax rates and suggested we write a book together, which he agreed. So that was, um, that was a major turning point. The next was, and it's one of the easiest cycle turns I ever saw, was in the late 70s, there was this massive blow off in commodities. Everybody was terrified the dollar was going to zero. The Fed had lost control. The Fed was a laughing stock. Gold went from 100 in 1976 to 8.75 at the end of 79. Silver went from 5 to 50. It was uh, it was an incredible time, and there were full page ads in the New York Times and Wall Street Journal promoting the concept that we were about to enter a Great Depression and the dollar was going to go to zero. And I said, this is not going to happen. So I became a, a, a delighted contrarian that we were going to see a strong dollar. We were going to see commodity prices collapse. We were going to see a huge bull market in stocks and bonds. And I wrote a book called Is Inflation Ending? Are You Ready? in 1982 that nobody read, although I've run into a couple of people who claim that they have, but uh, I have about uh, 5,000 copies in my warehouse. I knew it would be not read, but I wanted to make a statement. And I gave hundreds of speeches all through the uh, 1980s, arguing that the highest interest rates in capitalism would go to the lowest. A pure history of cycles. You go from one extreme, everybody's on one side of the boat, then you're going to go to the other. And here we are, we were, were last year negative interest rates of 18 trillion. Hardly, hardly could be believed 35 years ago. So the next interesting opportunity I found was in 1991, the Hang Seng index had crashed because of Chittenden Square. All of the Wall Street brokerage firms had moved to Singapore. And I went there and I saw that the Hang Seng had the best 30-year earnings record over the last 30 years was selling at five times earnings for the 6% dividend yield and was selling at a China discount when I thought it should sell at China premium. It was one of the, the great opportunities you'll ever see in your lifetime. 
And it was, I just loved being a contrarian. And I went from, uh, from uh, Hong Kong to Guangzhou, the old Canton, in 1992. And they were putting up a building every 30 feet. You'll never see anything like this in your life before. China was coming alive. It was going to be the great story of our lives. So I co-founded the first pure Asian hedge fund and brought over most of my Western clients who invested in the Hang Seng under 2,500. By January of 1994, the Hang Seng was 12,500 and the rate of change was, was too excessive. And for me, rate of change is what I live and breathe. And so I resigned my partnership closed our office and came back to the United States. So I was looking for something to do. And I noticed that there was the internet. I'd already made an internet investment in an Israeli translation software company in 1993. And I saw the internet as being all of human knowledge available for all of humanity. And I said, this is the greatest thing that's ever happened. This is unbelievable. I looked at the tech stocks. I saw that they'd been going down for seven or eight years, ever since the uh, Time magazine had chosen the machine of the year in 1983 as the you know, person machine of the year. It was a profitless prosperity. And uh, so I co-founded one of the first pure, if not the first pure, technology hedge funds in 1994. And of course, you know what happened after that. At the same time, I was watching uh, the Asian stock markets. You know, I'd left, I was no longer involved. And I saw that they'd been going sideways for two years and were starting to break down. Everybody was bullish on Asia. Too much capital was flowing in. And it was clearly uh, signs of a peak to me. And then to top it all off, Malaysia had built the world's, world's highest building. And for 100 years, that has always been the sign of the top. So we turned very bearish on, on uh, Asia, wrote over 100 memos, arguing that it would go from the um, emerging Asia to um, the emerging world to the developed world. And that's pretty much what happened. Um, and then the last was, you know, fast forward to 2002, pretty much everything's happened. The NASDAQ has uh, collapsed 90, almost 90%. And um, there's a financial crisis going on and junk bonds are selling for 15%. Emerging market bonds are yielding 15, 16%. And I look and I see the commodity prices are going up. I said, how could this be? It should be going down. And uh, it was a tremendous opportunity. It's what I call an anomaly, something that should be happening but isn't, or something that is happening and shouldn't be. You know that it's significant, but you don't understand why. And that's what I look for, those kinds of signals. And in this case, what was happening was it was the rise of China. And China was going to enter on this massive investment program and commodities were starting to go up. 
And I'd stumbled on this book called Hubbard's Peak, which argued that there was going to be peak oil. And we got very involved with oil in 2002 at $20 and basically wrote it all the way up to 143.50 in my case in 2008, in June 2008. Um, so each one of those was a very contrarian position and some of them were easier than others. And, uh, but essentially it was being alone and everybody else was on the other side of the boat. So my mistakes, I'm sorry. Well, yeah, that's great. I was going to ask about the mistakes. Which there have been a lot. Um, was that in 1996-97, I became very concerned about the U.S. stock market. Uh, and, um, of course, Alan Greenspan did as well. But he, he could have stopped it, but he didn't. Irrational exuberance. And all the reasons I mentioned about emerging Asia were all at play. But what I didn't understand at the time was that capital was leaving emerging Asia and concentrating in the U.S. and then it left all of the emerging world and concentrated in the U.S. in the most speculative areas. So the lesson of that is that uh, being early in these periods can be extremely dangerous and, and uh, painful. And Soros is absolutely right in this theory of reflexivity that markets feed on themselves and feed back in the economy and it just goes on and on and on. And so many people have been steamrolled by that kind of mistake. And once you get out of sync, it's really hard to get back in sync. So a second mistake was, as I mentioned, having been very bullish on technology in general and understanding how big it was and how big e-commerce would be and all the things that were going on when the NASDAQ crashed, I did not go back in and buy uh, tech stocks, which would have been a fantastic investment. And later when I got out of oil and was uh, able to focus on something else, they'd gone up so much that it was too late for me. And I think that's a mistake of mine that I don't, if I don't get in early, I have a hard time getting in later. So the third and most recent and, and most painful recently is <clears throat> I thought the quantitative easing would be inflationary. And it was, there were beautiful arguments. And it's the funny thing about markets is you can have the greatest rationale and it sounds beautiful <laughs> and it's, the reality is something uh, different. And what QE did was to create excess capacity because it was free money. And capital flowed, of course, into the shale and flowed into Silicon Valley. So the technology exacerbated the deflationary forces, as did the shale revolution. And then when oil crashed, uh, of course, it, went, it was very deflationary. I finally understood this in August of 2014, but it was, uh, it was a painful period there. Uh, and... I think the lesson there is that you have to be very flexible mentally when you're new territory and something you've never seen before and to think it through. 
And if I thought that through, it's a pretty simple conclusion that free money would mean excess capacity. But there was a dogma about free money being inflationary that I had inherited from my reading, and um, that was wrong. Well, and, and that brings me to some of your, your current views. You know, if QE was, it turns out, actually deflationary because it uh, encouraged so much debt creation and capacity creation, now that we're talking about, and the Fed is already unwinding QE, um, is that going to be inflationary? Well, you know, that would be, that's a question that we have posed. If, if QE is deflationary, will withdrawing it be inflationary? And uh, we've made a very good case that way. But I think where the inflation can come would be from the fact that we're in a synchronized global economic expansion for the first time since 2007. And that was at the end of the cycle and we could be more at the beginning of the cycle. Europe is something like 27% of global GDP and they are really uh, operating on many cylinders. And as capital leaves the US, because it had concentrated here in the 2007 to 2015 period, that money is going back into the rest of the world. Europe was a very important contributor of capital to the emerged, emerging world. And when that was withdrawn because Europe's banks were being squeezed, they suffered very much. And now Europe's banks are healthier. And so that capital is starting to flow. So we've got a global synchronized growth we believe that oil prices have bottomed and are heading higher, so that's inflationary. We've had all these years of fantastic crops. One of these years, we're going to have a bad growing season, and we'll see higher food prices. But most of all, if we're right about the dollar being the beginning of the long-term bear market, that's inflationary. And I know that's one of your, your major themes is uh, a new dollar bear market for the next several years. What are you seeing um, uh, that is leading you to, to believe that's a new major trend? Well, it's a, it's a multi-pronged answer. We start off with too much capital concentration in the U.S., and when capital concentrates, of course, it can concentrate more, but more often than not, when it concentrates too much, then it, it goes somewhere else. So we're starting to see that. So that's one. A second is that the euro, which was considered dead, has, has turned out to be very much alive. So I've been very bullish on the euro since about 105 or early in the year. And we're at 118 and change. We got up to 120 and change. So Europe is, is doing just fine. The euro is going to hold together. And that's a very important segment of the world. So money is flowing back there. And then we have China, where people thought that China was a Ponzi scheme, uh, debt, excessive debt. And now there is a perception that China 
is much different than people have thought. So what I would say, there's just a re-rating going on. So the, the U.S. has been way up here and Europe and China were way down here. And it's just being a re-rating. So capital is starting to flow out of the U.S. back into these other areas. Well, and is that, a, is that a function of interest rates as well? I mean, I, it seems like a lot of money has flowed to the U.S. just because of we have nominally positive interest rates. You know, one of the only developed countries with nominally positive interest rates. And, and do you see that uh, you were talking about witnessing that major peak in yields, you know, back in the early 80s, late 70s. Are you seeing now um, uh, kind of the the mirror image of that and a, and a bottoming in yields globally right now? Well, it, you know, one would have been uh, considerably uh, burnt if one had made forecasts about lows in rates at any point in the last 10 years. But I do think that very high odds that we've seen the secular lows. And we had a a false breakout in yields in the summer of last year, which has been a uh, a signal when things look like they're about to go much higher or lower and that it reverses, that's an important uh, signal. So what's happened is that global growth recovering is helping central banks to understand that they can get off this very easy money policy. So at some point, Draghi is going to to change his mind and start raising rates. And uh, Kuroda in Japan, if he's if he continues, which I don't think he will, will embark on a different different route. And I can make a case that. These zero interest rates have been extremely negative for the economy and that higher rates are, are good. It's like, again, we're in uncharted territory. So we can only just imagine and think and analyze and change our mind as we see events unfold. But that's what I would say at the moment. So during the, well, the first uh, temper uh, tantrum over the taper, which was, I think, May of 2013, the rest of the world was still cutting rates and the market started to expect that the Fed would raise rates. So now the Fed has already raised rates a lot. I mean, you know, by comparison with where they were and the rest of the world is just embarking on, on that. And that may be much more important than what the Fed does. So if, if Draghi finally starts to raise rates and Kuroda or his successor all of a sudden surprises the markets by raising rates, that would be much more significant than uh, whatever the Fed does in this era that we're in now. Yeah, well, you mentioned earlier that you look for, um, you know, things that, you know, shouldn't be happening. And I just look at the spread between U.S. and German yields. And, you know, it's to me, it's a very it's the widest spread, you know, uh, ever. Um, and it's that to me is very hard to justify at this point with Europe recovering nicely and German wages doing well. And, you know, um, so, yeah, if you if you expect a or mean reversion there, you know, that would have to be bullish for the euro, I would think. Um, and speaking
speaking of currencies, you mentioned to me also that one of the greatest risks you see is a potential free fall in the dollar. What is that? What does that look like? Why? Where does that come from? Well, you're absolutely right. Uh, we think that the bonds are ridiculously priced, and they will have to go much higher. Uh, and that that spread you referred to is really a function of Draghi and the ECB. And that's going to change. Um, yeah, so I mean, I, I definitely see that happen. And, and what is it that makes you think that there could be a freefall in the dollar? Just the, the, the pace of change there that it's gone, the spread has gone so far that a, a repricing could happen very quickly? Well, again, we come back to capital concentration and capital concentration when circumstances change always goes too far in the other direction. And this is an important thing about cycles. You go from one extreme to the other extreme. You go from 15% long rates you know, down to negative yields in many places. It's these extremes. You go from the Dow at 750 to a Dow at uh, you know, above 20,000. It's these extremes and if you look at how the dollar has traded, what we've really been in wasn't really a new dollar bull market, but was a bear market rally. At least there's a case to be made for that. And many of the reasons that people invested here, there's the interest rate, so that's changing. There's the, uh, the great tech companies. Well, they're under attack from every single, uh, every single place. Sure, they're fantastic monopolies. They're making a tremendous amount of money. But you can't continue to accumulate wealth and market cap uh, appreciation and profits at the rate that they are because they'll own the world. It's just physics, laws of physics just won't allow that. So all of a sudden, that has changed. And if you look at China... It has a late mover advantage in technology. So Silicon Valley isn't the only game in town. China, in many places, is more advanced, like in quantum computing, quantum communications, uh, maybe in artificial intelligence, certainly in mobile payments, uh, et cetera. And then you have the, uh, what I would say, instability and disunity in the United States and the the, uh, the, the, the dysfunctional aspect of it. So before America was viewed as a safe haven, everything was great, nothing could ever go wrong on a political standpoint. And you see a lot of disruption and disunity. So there's a certain amount of a premium coming off of that at the moment. So you put that all together with greater opportunities elsewhere, and what you could have is uh, a significant uh, downturn in the U.S. dollar. Now, if you're a European and you have invested in the U.S. and you haven't been hedged, you are actually down this year in euro terms. So all of a sudden, you know, your boss is looking at you and said, well, you're going to have to bring your money back or you're going to have to hedge or whatever. So these things feed on themselves. Remember, we're coming off this point that extremes always breed other extremes. And it's the very fact that you know those cycles and you look for those cycles and that's where the opportunity is. 
So we're looking at about a seven-year decline in the U.S. dollar. There have been four such cycles since 1972, 15-year cycle. And uh, in the first two years of the uh, bear market and the dollar in 2002, the euro went up, I think, 37% with barely a significant correction. And so I'm not saying the free fall would begin immediately, but I'm saying that as it reaches the end of this end of its cycle down, there could be a free fall or it could happen next year. Something could happen politically. Uh, you know, who knows? But there are a lot of weak links that could make that a significant risk. Well, it certainly feels like there's been almost panic buying uh, by foreigners in our markets to just capture some sort of yield. And a ton of money has flowed into the United States. I could see if you start seeing, you know, some rising rates, you know, back at home in Europe and Japan, that money could flow back very quickly. um, Speaking of Japan, you have written that, um, you know, Japan is really the, the laboratory for demographics, declining population, um, and wage, you know, increases. What is, uh, is deflation over in Japan? Well, that's a tremendously important question. <clears throat> I started studying Japan from this standpoint in 1997. Japan entered the baby bus before any other country. And their population has been declining for some time. Their working population has declined. They have the oldest population because they are so healthy. And the dependency ratios are are terrible. And they allowed themselves to fall into a huge asset bubble in the 1980s. And because the Bank of Japan was very revisionary, looking backwards rather than forwards, they were worried about the bubble being reignited when what they had was a major implosion in asset prices. So they needed to actually do QE in 1991. It never would have happened. And that's why these cycles always work, because they're always looking backwards. The generals fighting the last war. We see it over and over and over again. So um, Japan has been a country that is very uh, homogeneous. And in 1999, uh, Mr. Yan, Mr. Sakakibara, told me, well, we're going to have 500,000 uh, immigrants and that will help our labor problem. Well, of course, that didn't happen. Now, finally, they're doing that. They're also bringing women into the job force, which they didn't have before. And Abe asked when he caused the, the yen devaluation, he asked the Japanese business people, will you please give a wage increase? Well, they didn't. And they're making huge profits. Now he's talking more seriously that he wants 3% wage increases. This is a country that has had absolutely flat wages since 1996. So deflation has become very embedded in their mindset. So if we get inflation in Japan, it will have monstrous significance for the rest of the world because it would mean that the deflation concern, which is my great worry, because the nuclear winter, you can't make any money 
That's the great risk. So if if it turns in Japan, that's a hugely encouraging sign. So we're watching it very, very carefully. And it looks it looks like there's a change coming. It looks like it. Okay. Um, and, and while we're on the topic of uh, Japan, um, you've also made con- comparisons. Um, you mentioned the bubble, you know, back in the in the eighties. You made comparisons to the you know financial engineering um, of the companies you know back then, comparing that to the buyback phenomena in today's stock market. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? Yes. Well, we certainly. I've written about it endlessly, uh, and you take us just take Sears as an example. So Sears bought stock back as high as one hundred and eighty dollars, and stock is low single digits. They didn't invest in the future. They didn't go to the stores. They still would have had a lot of problems, but they wasted an enormous amount of capital. So I think that these buybacks have been bad for American companies. Everybody looking at it, or if you're an investor or an institutional investor, you want that to happen because you want the stock to go up and the stock will go up and the CEOs are motivated to do it that way. But in reality, if you're not investing in the future and China and India and other countries are, you're gonna fall behind. And what we need is major capital investment. And I don't buy the argument that there's no real growth, there's nothing to invest in. There's a lot to invest in, believe me. Uh, Look at the incredibly sorry state of American infrastructure. Look at the need for smart grids. Look at the need for ports. Look at the need for high-speed rail. Look at the need for uh, winning the artificial intelligence race. Look at the need for uh, winning the quantum communications race. I mean, there there is trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars that can be invested, but it's being used by stockbacks that will pump up stock prices, which is great for the near term, but not good for the long term. Well, and and um, you know, I guess my question is, uh, I was still in high school in the eighties, so I wasn't paying that close attention to what was going on in the Japanese stock market. How 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 is what companies are doing today similar to what the companies were doing in Japan back then? Were they doing buybacks? What what, what was going on back then? Well, what they were doing is buying each other's stock, <clears throat> and. You could argue it's not that dissimilar. And so as the stock market went up, it fed on itself. So if you are taking your cash flow or borrowing money, which of course they did, to buy uh, the, um, the stock of another company and that stock goes up, then your stock goes up and it just feeds on itself. So it was, I mean, in a way, it was really the ultimate Ponzi scheme. And they've spent decades trying to deal with that. It was a huge unwind process. Um, and it was destruction of capital, of course, when, when the, uh, the Nikkei uh, crashed from uh, about 40,000 down to uh, well under 10,000. And the fact that they were, you know, just spending money on buying each other's stock rather than investing in 
the future of their businesses. Um, it was that one of the major contributors. I mean, the stock market's still below its 1990 high uh, in, in Japan. Is that one of the one of the main contributing factors to to why the, the companies have done so poorly for so long? Well, I think there was um, a lot of other reasons. The um, the strong yen was a major factor because it meant that uh, there would be more deflation in Japan than elsewhere. And I remember in the late 90s, shorting JGBs was the favorite uh, hedge fund idea. And I even fell into that trap in 1999 or something. And... Um, we all thought that Japan was the outlier, but Japan wasn't the outlier. Japan was the future. <laughs> so that's why I studied Japan really, really carefully. So it, it was the strong currency. It was the, it was the very backward thinking of the Bank of Japan, very primitive, very dinosaur-like, looking backwards instead of understanding what was going on in the country. It was that. It was the fact that real estate fell uh, from 20 trillion of valuation down to say five trillion. I don't remember exactly the number. Um, so you had this massive loss of real estate values on an economy that was a fraction of that. So when you lose that much wealth, it's hugely deflationary uh, impact. And then also there was all this this interconnectedness of buying each other's shares that it fueled the boom going up, just like stock buybacks today have fueled uh, the equity boom going up because, uh, you know, obviously if there's a lot less shares available, uh, then what's going to happen? But the stock's going to go up. So there has to be, uh, the piper has to be paid at some point. Right. And now, you know, to, to just stay on the topic of Japan, um, in one of your recent reports, you shared just a beautiful long-term chart of the Nikkei breaking out, breaking its downtrend. Um, and, and you're bullish on Japanese equities now? Yeah, we are. I, uh, I luckily avoided Japan uh, through my career just because I felt it was a manipulated market. And I did short the yen in 1995, but beyond that, I really hadn't done much. And uh, I was in Hong Kong in September 2012, and I saw that Abe was running for prime minister. He wanted to take over the Bank of Japan. I said, bingo, this is it. So I shorted the yen, and a month later, I, I bought um, Japanese Nikkei uh, futures, and that, in fact, was the secular uh, low uh, in, in the Japanese stock market. So it had been a bear market that had gone on for 22 years, and that's an awfully long time. So um, here we are uh, at uh, 22,000 uh, versus that number of 8,000. And it's very underweighted by foreign investors. Japan, I think, has 40% of the world's savings. They have some very great companies. Uh, they're very good in innovation. And so I think it's, uh, I think this is going to be a, a definitely a new secular bull market in Japan. And 
Japan could well be the best performing market in the world in the next 12 months. It doesn't mean that it will be up because everything else may be down. I don't know. But it will be down less or will go up more. And if the yen rises, as we believe, then you can make even more in currency terms. Interesting. Yeah. And, and, you know, in terms of the currency and, and coming back to the dollar, um, you also mentioned the uh, brewing backlash against big tech. Uh, let's talk about that a little bit. It's something I've been watching very closely because the stock prices like Howard Marks, you know, recently wrote are priced for perfection. Um, but what's really going on is a major attack on their business models. Um, what, what are your thoughts there? Well, there's so many different uh, ways to come at it. First of all, you have EU is attacking um, them. Uh, some of that, of course, is pushback uh, because Europe doesn't have great tech companies like that. Uh, so it is sort of a, a country uh, competition. But the EU is a very big market for them, and they're putting through fines, and they're very determined. So that's happening. Pretty much the same thing has already happened in China. So so that's over here. Then here, what you have is that the tech platforms were exempt from liability from what they put on their uh, platform from a 1996 Act of Congress while all other media companies are responsible. So there's great discussion that that will be revisited. And because they're so profitable and because they're so big and have so much power and they are monopolizing the um, businesses that they're in, I think that's very likely that will happen. Then you have the third, which is the area of antitrust. So antitrust in America was essentially begun when the great monopolists of the late 19th century had these great monopolies, standard oil, meatpacking, whatever it is. And the, the, the legislation was created that if prices went up because of monopoly power, then you should be stopped. But if prices were going down because of monopoly power, you are benefiting the consumer. And this argument is what has saved big tech because they have argued that they're increasing efficiency, that they're bringing prices down. But now there's serious consideration being given to the fact that antitrust needs to be revisited in light of this. Then you have the, the impact of technology where people are addicted to smartphones and their minds can't focus and concentrate because they're multitasking and they can't look at anything and focus for more than, uh, I think the last I saw was about eight seconds. And how are we gonna be able to solve the world's, world's problems as complicated as they are with people who can't focus? So there are all these things going on at the same time. And how it all comes out, I don't know. But there are people in Congress who are waking up to the reality of this, and they need to take a look at it. Now, you go to China, it's a different story, because Alibaba and Tencent are working very closely with the Chinese government 
to assist them in giving them information on what everybody is doing. So that will increase stability in China. So it's uh, in America, this is creating instability. So it's an interesting uh, contrast. Yeah, and you, you, uh, in terms of um, market action, you've also written, and I don't know, I don't know if you're you were referring mainly to the stock markets or markets for risk assets or foreign currency, but you, you call market action extremely insidious with frequent false breakouts and breakdowns. What, um, what, what are you specifically, you know, kind of referring to there? Which markets and what are the implications? Well, we see this a lot. I don't know if it's the algos who are doing this, uh, but it's reality. So let's look at the gold price in December, January 2015, January 2016. So it looked like it was breaking below support and it looked like it was going to a thousand or lower. But in fact, that was a false breakdown. So, as I mentioned before, we had the same thing in U.S. bonds, where it looked like it was a, a breakout in price in uh, the summer of 2016, but it really was a failed breakout in price, and then you had a very significant correction. So we see this a lot, and we see we see these false breakdowns or breakouts, and if they fail, then the reversal is very significant. So we're very attuned to this because it looks like, oh my God, now it's really going to fly or now it's really going to go down. And the reality, that isn't what happens. It's the reverse. And so being aware of that, you get to see some really good opportunities and you know that the reversal will be sharp and fast and big. And is how is that? I mean, how is it different than um, uh, what you know normal market action that you've witnessed through your career? Is it just more more noted, more more exacerbated these false breakouts and breakdowns? I don't remember seeing these false breakouts and breakdowns. I think this is a relatively new phenomenon. I mean, there are examples. Uh, of course, where you know, you make a low and then you you come back and you test that low and then you break it. I mean, there are examples of that. I think look at the uh, the Dow in seventy uh, four. You got five eighty four in September. I'm sorry, October of seventy four, and then you rallied and then you came back. And you broke that low in December at five seventy. So. You know, you do have examples of that, but they tended to be very rare. And these are frequent. You're seeing this all the time in, in markets. And I think it's I think it's maybe algorithms or it's it's sort of a, a group of, of traders who are trying to test the market and see and flush out uh, the longs or shorts or whatever it is. You see that a lot uh, in the futures market where there'll be what I call a manipulation because it's been going on since time began that they'll break a trend line on purpose. Everybody gets really upset and all the longs get flushed out and then that's the low. And then we go back to the same thing again, but with not 
not having the longs on board. Right. Well, you know, it could be just be uh, like, I think you're, you're hinting at um, the, the lack of fundamental investors, fundamental, you know, traders in the markets, and then the prevalence and popularity of trend following and momentum and these types of things. So they, they hop on and push things further than they otherwise would go. You, you know, Carol, you clearly do a ton of reading. Just, you know, read any weekly report of yours, and it's just a wealth of information that you've gleaned from a number of sources. What does your uh, daily routine look like? Well, I'm uh, a very um, disciplined person with time, because time is all you have. And I come in early work really hard and try to get out of the office as early as I can. And uh, I have a routine where I go work out, I do my stationary bicycle, I stretch, I breathe for at least two hours, try to get a swim in in the ocean. I happen to be uh, here in Bahamas at the moment, or as the case may be, go for a walk or something. And then uh, do a lot of reading. We waste an awful lot of time on uh, email and uh, I would be the first person who said, if I, if I never had to use my smartphone again, I would be really happy. But it's reality. Uh, but it's, it's time management and a lifetime of focus on not wasting any seconds. And I think about sometimes a little too brusque with people because I don't want to waste time on, on my routine. I'm going to you know, go to the gym. I got those two hours. Don't bother me. And so I can be a little bit brusque that way. But that's how I get everything in. I read books. I, I meditate. I have quiet time. I spend time with beauty. Uh, I spend time with spirituality. I read a whole number of different subjects, have a passion about a lot of different things. And I work very hard and I get it all in. And in terms of um, your 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 uh, the, that daily reading that you do, um, are there, you know, uh, is it just the, the major financial newspapers? I mean, what, what is it? What are your, some of your key things that you, you make sure you cover? Well, I have uh, a team of people. We have about 65 people all over the world. And uh, they're very, very good at what they do and the subjects. And they're constantly feeding me information on market action, what's going on in China, what's happening in India. And they're, they're fantastic about finding information for me. Uh, believe it or not, personally, I like reading uh, the old style newspapers and everybody kind of laughs at it. But what a newspaper does is it gives you the coverage, the front coverage of what is supposedly important. And you'll see what's highlighted. I like to look at magazine covers, even though people don't read magazines anymore. The magazine covers, you know, economists. Uh, can be very helpful on picking tops and, and, and seeing a sediment. But the beauty about reading a newspaper, the way people absorb information now is they have feeds on subjects that they're interested in, which we've been doing with LexisNexis going back 30 years. So it's nothing new there. But you only are reading information of what you're interested in. I want to be reading information that I'm not interested in because I may find something that I should be interested in. Right. That's where you can you can get out of out of the newspapers, and I find that 
at least to me anyway, the Financial Times and New York Times, the quality of the journalism has really, really gotten good. The Wall Street Journal has just fallen off a cliff. It's, it's useless. USA Today is useless. South China Morning Post was absolutely fascinating. Jack Ma owns it. Uh, and uh, there's really a lot of great stuff there. So between the Financial Times and the New York Times and even there, I don't have enough time to read all the articles in depth, but you'll find something that is so precious that's hidden somewhere. It's just a nugget. And I have this section uh, in our newsletter. I'm talking about connecting the dots and you're just pulling out data points here and here and here and here and here. And it's amazing how all of a sudden a picture starts to come. I'll give you an example. So we have uh, Jack Ma in Alibaba. I've been studying for a very long time. I think he's the smartest guy in the space. Late mover advantage. He was the guy that began what we call O2O, which was not even known in this country at the time. He started a few years ago. But that was to buy bricks and mortar retail outlets. So what he's doing now is instead of crushing the bricks and mortar retailers in China. He's working with them to use the Alibaba network to help them do business while Amazon is crushing these people. Think about the different model, right? So it's that kind of thing that you, you just, and then from there, you piece that together with something else and something else, and then you get a bigger picture. And this is how you get a greater understanding of, of the world. Fantastic. Yeah. And, and uh, you, in terms of um, uh, you use the term uh, late mover advantage, right? Everybody knows first mover advantage. What, what, what do you mean when you say late mover advantage? Well, this has been a theme of mine since 1988. I read in an article that it had taken the U.S. 50 years to build a landline system. And before the U.S., it was the U.K. 70 years. And Japan did it in, say, 30, and Korea did it in 20, but you could put a mobile system in in a year and a half. I said, bingo, wow. This means emerging markets are going to be hot. And that's when I started to get interested in investing in emerging markets. And then I extrapolated that out to meaning where is internet usage taking out? taking off and where do we have mobile penetration that's the highest and if you had that as your roadmap and you're investing in emerging markets and literally you followed that roadmap you would have you would have won in every single place so what i'm saying is that the legacy system ties you to the old way and you're reluctant to invest in the new because those who own the legacy systems are the ones who are going to resist the change. And we see this time and time again. So if you take China as the late mover advantage, they didn't have a distribution system. They didn't have a, a payment system. India that doesn't, don't, they don't have bank accounts. So the internet is phenomenal for this because you've mobile payments, uh, which is highest in the world in China. I think they have, 800 million people are paying via WeChat on their mobile phone, which is 11 times the number uh, per capita versus the U.S. So that's a late mover advantage. And 
it means you're not tied to the old legacy system. Another example would be in uh, after World War II, uh, Britain did not rebuild its its ports. Sure, they had been bombed and, and there had been some of that, but in Germany, they've been totally destroyed. And same in, in Japan. So they started new with the latest technology. So it was a competitive advantage. Gotcha. Gotcha. We, we talked about, um, you know, periodicals that you read. Do you have any favorite investment books? Well, <clears throat> I would say the, the first one that really had an impact on me was um, uh, The Art of Contrary Thinking by Humphrey Neal. And he was a guy up in Vermont. And um, so I just love that. Absolutely love that. Uh, a second is The Bubble That Broke the World by Garrett Garrett. He was a fantastic writer, probably the greatest financial writer in history. And it was about the, the bubble in, in the 20s. And what he explained to me was that the bubble really wasn't in equities because only 2 or 3% of American population owned equities. The bubble was in bonds and foreign bonds, all of which defaulted. And he writes magnificently. And then there's the, uh, the Lords of Finance by uh, Ahmed. Uh, and what was fascinating about that was that it showed the, the huge World War I debt buildup. So you had, uh, if I remember correctly, the GDP of the warring nations was roughly, say, 50 billion, but the debt buildup was 200 billion. Well, of course, it's, our debt buildup is three times GDP, global GDP, so it's kind of similar. Uh, and um, what he showed was that when a country devalued, it immediately restored prosperity. It's absolutely fascinating. And the countries that waited the longest were the longest to come out of the depression. And FDR uh, essentially um, devalued the dollar against gold by um, 50%, if I remember. And industrial production in the U.S. in the next three, three months went up bigger than it ever had in history. So it was extremely interesting. And this is what Japan did in the 30s. They had a 60% valuation. Uh, and Japan never entered the, the Great Depression. They grew 4 5 6%. And that's what, what Japan should have done this time around. They didn't devalue enough. And I think it was politically impossible, but they could have at least have tried so 60% Japan, uh, I don't remember exactly how much the devaluation was, but it wasn't anywhere near 60%. So the idea that if you have a deflation, you can end it by currency devaluation. So those are the three that I would choose. Okay. Yeah, I loved uh, Lords of Finance, read that recently. Um, terrific. The other two I'm going to go pick up as soon as we get done here. So thanks, thanks for that. How can people keep up with your ideas, Carol? Where can they find you? Well, we're, uh, we have a website, which is uh, 13D, um, and that's the best place to start. Uh, we'd be delighted to have uh, more people read us. And I uh, have a very good team of people who 
would respond to any inquiries. Thank you for asking that question. Yeah, I know you put out a lot of, um, I think it's a, a blog post every week, which which looks to me like it's one segment of the, the weekly newsletter. So there's a ton of free content at 13d.com. And then um, it's at what I learned uh, TW is, on, is tw- the Twitter account. And right. I highly recommend following the Twitter account. You guys share a ton of, ton of charts and stuff there. So, Carol, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. It's been uh, a real pleasure having you. Same, same here. Thank you. Uh, it's uh, wonderful to have met you and to talk to your, your, uh, your audience. that does it for another episode of Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. As always, you can find notes and charts related to this episode at thefelderreport.com. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, buy low, sell high. Man looks in the abyss. There's nothing staring back at him. At that moment, man finds his character. And that is what keeps him out of the abyss.